you for joining the Element Church Podcast, where we exist to guide people to experience life to its fullest, connect into meaningful relationships, and make a lasting impact. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope this message inspires and strengthens your faith. Good morning, everybody. I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. I know you care deeply about me and my well-doing. You guys are the best. My name is Buzz, and I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. And this is like my fourth week preaching, and I haven't screwed it up yet. Don't correct me. Okay, and so we're going to see how we can do today. I'm excited to continue in our series, Fire Forged Faith. We've been looking at the life of Nehemiah who was a man who lived long before Jesus, and yet God used him and tested him and tempered him in some tough times and used his life to bring forward a more beautiful community, a more beautiful kingdom for those whom he served and whom he was around. Today we're going to do, honestly, like a little bit too much, right? We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 5 and survey all the way to Nehemiah chapter 12. So get your Bibles ready, get your iPhone ready, make sure your battery's at 100%, because here we go, right? I love looking at the scriptures because it kind of gives us like a little bit of a roadmap for what God wants to build in our lives. You know, sometimes you have a project and you want it to turn out great, but you don't exactly know what it's supposed to look like when you finish, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? If you are a Lego owner, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Does your house look like my house where it's like bins just filled with Legos and you just don't even think about how much you spend on Legos because it's so distressing. And then my mom brought Uh, all my Legos that I had when I was a kid into our house and they're in bins as well. And so when you build Legos, you got basically two choices. You can like fish in the bin and try to come up with something out your own mind. And if you're like me, like it's not cool, like it's not good. Leave that stuff to the professionals, right? And that's the second choice is get an instruction manual, build what they tell you to step by step. It's so easy. Even a baby can do it. And by a baby, I mean me. And then you come out there with an amazing like Star Wars ship or whatever, right? Roman, my son asked for a new Lego for his birthday. And I was like, dude, we have so many Legos and he's smarter than me. So he went online to Lego website and downloaded the instructions, came out with a thing built. We didn't even have the pieces. Saved me like a hundred bucks. It was the best, right? This is what I'm talking about. We have an instruction book, something that we're aiming towards, or we can kind of get out there on our own, right? And that's the choice we have in life as well. So if I'm telling you that Nehemiah is kind of going to tell us today, here's what it should look like when your life is done being built. I thought, man, what would it look like perhaps if uh, we went our own way and we made our own mistakes and we caused some of the disasters that, if we're honest with ourselves, we cause far too often in our lives. And so I had Tim fish out this video for you. Keep your eye on the guy in blue because he's going to tell you what it looks like when you go your own way and you cause a little bit of disaster. Tim, you got that video for us? Family's front yard fireworks show goes horribly wrong. It, all it took was to spark to send everything up in flames and it was all caught on camera. Take a look. Yeah, you guys are like, Buzz, that's not that funny. And then the guy went over there and he dumped a bunch more fireworks in it. What is that guy doing? Like, it's not enough that you're blowing up your family. They're running for cover. You just throw a little more in there. You know, we bought them. We might as well use them. Just, you know, you can't take them back. And it's like right by his van. Like, I don't know. What is going on? Like, surely on the box of instructions on these fireworks, it was like, do not blow up your car. Do not terrify your family. And he didn't care. He just gets in there and does it. 
you know, this is why fireworks are a bit more dangerous than Legos. Like Legos, you can step on them. It hurts like a lot, you know. But nobody like runs away screaming and you don't have to buy a new car when you step on a Lego, you know. And our life is kind of that way, isn't it? Like we have such power in our lives because we matter to God and we matter to our family. We matter to the people around us. And so it's less like you're stepping on a Lego and more like you have the propensity, power, or ability to cause some disastrous damage if you don't do what the instruction book tells you to do. You're going to be like that poor guy in the blue t-shirt blowing up his van and everybody runs away running and screaming. I think if we're honest, sometimes we're stuck in these patterns of life and we don't even know how to get out of them. You might be thinking like, yeah, my life is kind of like that. I do these disastrous mistakes I know better every single day. And what's more, like that's how my mom was. That's how my dad was. That's how my grandpa was. That's how my whole community is. That's how my whole workplace is. There's just this pattern that you're stuck in and you can't figure out a way to get out of the pattern. You know, there's an Old Testament writer named Walter Brueggemann. And he says one of the reasons we're stuck in these patterns or these cycles where we're just blowing everything up is because we lack the imagination to envision something better. I love how he put this. He calls it the prophetic imagination. Brugman says the Old Testament, including passages like today, like Nehemiah, part of the purpose that God gave them to us is so that we can see and imagine a more beautiful world. Maybe you couldn't come up with it on your own. You couldn't build it out the Lego bin, but we want to give you a picture, an instruction book, something beautiful, something better, something worth pursuing more than your blow up yourself kind of a life. You know, there's a, there's a man who I'm sure you've heard of. His name was Walt Disney. You guys heard about Disney? They own everything. They got their fingers in all the pies. But how did it start? Is Walt Disney saw something before anybody else could see it, right? Disneyland didn't exist, but he conceived of it. Animated movies that were like so new and he saw their potential and their power. And he uh, taught us how to come around and embrace storytelling. And Walt Disney was what they call a visionary. He created something beautiful for which there was no roadmap previously. And now we look at Disney and we're like, oh, that totally makes sense. In fact, we actually have a video of what Walt Disney would do if he had fireworks to show his family. What might that look like? For the low, low price of $119 a day, you yourself can go and, and experience this magic, right? Nobody's running for cover. Nobody's running for their life. Nobody's worried about their car blowing up. It's like a beautiful thing, right? They say that Disneyland is the happiest place on earth, right? And so now if we're doing fireworks displays, we think to ourselves, what would Disney do? If we think about a beautiful experience, we think to ourselves, what would Disneyland do? And they kind of become that benchmark that we shoot for. But before Walt Disney showed us how to do it, we had no idea at all, right? And that's kind of like our life. We're stuck in these patterns. We're blowing stuff up. Our family's running for cover. And we need somebody just to show us a better way to do it, a better way to live, right? Once you see the right way to do something, you couldn't even unsee it, right? You just have to see it once, glimpse it, experience it, and then it's kind of yours for forever. This is what visionaries like Walt Disney have given to us, right? And so it's all well and good for a theme park, but I don't care that much about building a great theme park. I want to build a life, a church, a ministry, a family that honors God. And so I want to see what is the pattern that Nehemiah sets down for us of a beautiful community, a beautiful kingdom. In other words, I'm kind of asking, once we get sparked into motion, once we forge that faith through fires of opposition, what is the world we are supposed to build look like? What is the world that God wants us to build? 
sometimes the world that God wants us to build is actually opposite of the way the world wants us to build. And this makes it even more confusing because we see models, patterns, blueprints of how to behave and operate. And I think if we were honest about the United States, the world would tell us to build something like these six things. You tell me if you agree or disagree with these. Uh, The world says stuff like, number one, look out for yourself. Nobody else is going to do it, so look out for yourself. Number two, the world says, seek entertainment. Life is short. Pursue it. Number three, the world might say, don't worry about your actions or your consequences. Like, live in the moment. And that's number four, right? Look only to today. Don't worry so much about the past or the future. Seize today. The world might say, number five, build as much wealth as you can. And then number six, the world would repeat, focus on yourself. Live your truth. Pursue your needs Nobody else is going to do it for you. Have you guys seen these like patterns around in our society and in our world? Man, to overcome these, we're going to need some imagination. We're going to need a new vision. And I think we're going to need some greatness. And so I would love to ask us today, what does Jesus say about building for greatness? If we're going to build a kingdom, a society, a pattern, what is Jesus' pattern? He tells us here in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24. He says, then they began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and the great men lord it over their people, yet they're called friends of the people. But among you, it should be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Well, in the world's eyes, the one who sits at the table, of course, but not here, for I meaning Jesus, God himself, come in human form. I am among you as one who serves. Man, I love the teachings of Jesus because they ring so true. Even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus today, you see in Jesus' teaching the world's pattern, that the great ones of our world, the rich people, the nobles, the authorities, the principalities, literally everybody is looking to lord authority over someone else. This is what we call the great one, who has the most money, who has the most position, who has the most power, And yet we still call them friends of the people, Jesus asks. He says, man, your way should be different. I'm like a servant, not somebody looking to accumulate power, authority, or wealth. And so Jesus is going to give us a new vision of a future. And I think Nehemiah is going to preview this for us. Nehemiah has an opportunity to rebuild a city and rebuild a society and say, how could we do this in a way that honors God? So I want to share with us today kind of six hallmarks, I'm calling it, of a faith-forged future. In other words, like six things that are going to distinctify the beautiful kingdom that God wants us to build. So we're going to start, as I said, in Nehemiah 5 and kind of survey 12 all the way to chapter 12. Um, So let's just jump into Nehemiah 5 because I think Nehemiah 5 teaches us that the first hallmark of a faith-forged future, a beautiful society, a better kingdom than the world can give, is marked firstly by care for the poor. Care for the poor. All right, let's look why I say that. It's uh, in Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read about 14 verses, so hang in there. At about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. Others said, we mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and our homes just to get food during the famine. Others said, we had to borrow money on our fields and our vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs, but we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. 
We've already sold some of our daughters. We're helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others. When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials, and I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. And so at the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? They had nothing to say in their defense. So I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, we have been lending the people money and grain, but let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charge when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. And so they replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. So then I called the priests and I made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. So I shook out the folds of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole assembly responded, amen, and they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. All right, we'll pause there. There's a lot there, isn't there? As the people had been regathered from the foreign land where they lived in oppression, now all of a sudden, things are not better at all. In fact, it's not a beautiful kingdom. It feels a little bit more like a disaster, like that first fireworks zone where people are running from cover because they can't pay their bills, they can't pay their taxes, they can't feed their families, they're losing their homes, they're losing their children. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's sad. The people in charge are making it so unfeasible to earn a living that they were just floating loans just to buy a meal. And I don't know if you've ever lived in poverty like that, uh, but if you have, you know that this is, it's a tough way to live. There's exhaustion, there's fear, there's doubt, there's shame. And uh, if you've ever had to take out a payday loan to buy groceries, you know what that interest does. It hurts. It takes away from your future. If you've ever had to mortgage your home to like float your business, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever had to lose or have something foreclosed on because of just owing mortgage or interest or debt, That's the kind of stuff Nehemiah is talking about. It costs real people, not people 500 years ago in Nehemiah's day, 1,500, 2,500 years ago, 500 BC. It costs us even today. You know, I think about our history in the United States uh, isn't immune to this type of a thing either. My grandfather was born in Ada, Oklahoma, which is like right in the middle of the Dust Bowl, right? And when he was a kid, this is of course all before I was born, uh, his parents lost their farm. They couldn't pay the bills, they couldn't grow the crops, the drought came, and he, like hundreds, thousands of American families, lost everything. Grandpa literally walked behind a truck to Washington State to try to build a better life for his family. And God is gracious, they built a better life, but I was beginning to wonder, like, why did the bank take so much land from everybody who couldn't pay their bills? What if the bank had decided to do something different? What if they had said, man, this drought... Uh, it's facing us all. We're going to give you forgiveness. We're going to give you time. We're going to repay your loan for you. We'll stop the interest payments. We will do something to imagine a better future for you and your family. Legally, the bank can take it. I mean, my grandparents, they weren't swindled. They just couldn't pay the bills. The bank took their stuff. But what if the bank had said, we can do this, but we choose to do something better, something more beautiful, something more generous instead, and given my family back its farm? I wonder what that kind of a society would be like. Maybe it'd be a little bit more beautiful than what grandpa had to experience. 
So I think this is what Nehemiah is teaching us here, that these in society who can do something about the suffering of others absolutely should. Absolutely they should. People shouldn't do harm to others for their own gain. That's what the world teaches. We should be more like Jesus teaches, like Nehemiah teaches, and like his society modeled for us, right? And so I'm not in charge of our society. I'm not like the governor of the world. And I'm not even really, in many ways, in charge of this church here, Element Church. And yet I look out at us as a family of God and I say, okay, what is our responsibility? And I think it's absolutely part of our responsibility at Element Church to care for the poor, just like Nehemiah teaches. Would you agree? Would you agree? I'm proud to say that Element Church, we try to put our money where our mouth is. 10% of everything that comes in, we spend on outreach. And pretty much what we mean by outreach is like buying food for people who don't have it, putting shoes on the feet of people who don't have it, giving clothes, just giving stuff to help people get to the next day, feed their family, and build a better future for themselves. I'm proud that we're a church that does that. In fact, even last week, we did a canned food drive. We raised more than a ton of food, probably like 2,500 pounds of food, just to give away to people in need. No strings. I'm proud to be a part of a community that's like that. And I hope that Element Church continues to be a church that leans in and cares for the poor. Even if we don't have to, we should, because it's beautiful to do that. It's what Nehemiah teaches, and it's what Jesus teaches. I would love to have a hallmark of our beautiful kingdom be that we care for the poor in our midst. Man, a lot more can be said about that for sure, but I want to look at our second indicator of a beautiful kingdom. Uh, What do we do when people come together? What's beautiful as we participate as a family? Well, we care for the poor. And then secondly, we value the gathered reading of Scripture. We gather the the gathered reading of Scripture. Let's see how Nehemiah puts it here in chapter 8. We'll start here in verse 7. I know we're jumping around a little bit in the timeline, but in chapter 8, Nehemiah has kind of regathered everybody. And now that he has everybody together, what's the most important thing to do? Let's see what Nehemiah chooses. He says it this way. The Levites... Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelata, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Paliah. And by the way, if you're expecting a child, some ideas for you. <laughs> All these people instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. All right, we'll pause there. So I love this vision we get from Nehemiah. All the people are together. They're reading the scripture. They're explaining the meaning of it. And it is a feast. It is a celebration. There is joy and there is happiness. And it's like the best day ever. For Nehemiah, this, it's like a church service. Basically, it's like the best day of his life. It's like a celebration. It's like Thanksgiving. It's like Christmas. It's like your birthday. Whatever of those three you feel like is the most important holiday, that's what this is, right? But I think if we're honest, that's not how we approach our own gathered reading of Scripture. Like today, does it feel like Thanksgiving? Does it feel like Christmas? Does it feel like your birthday? That I'm reading the Scripture aloud and I'm trying to do a good job explaining the sense of what it actually means? 
Or do we feel like going to church is a little bit more, and forgive me, like going to the dentist? Any dentist, just keep your hand down because you don't want to identify yourselves here for the next couple of minutes. We don't like going to the dentist. I think dentists know that, you know? I think they do. And uh, what's the best news the dentist can give you? No news, right? Everything is fine. More than likely, and again, this is just me processing my personal stuff up here, uh, as I share with you, like, I don't want to be hassled about not flossing. I know I should, right? So I'm not even going to go and get hassled. I probably have cavities. I don't want to go deal with them. Nobody at home is going to tell me I have cavities. The dentist is going to tell me some bad news, right? The best news is like no news, and the average news is bad news, right? And I feel like that's how we view church. It's like the best news is nobody guilted me. The average news is like I didn't like going. People were mean, and it just, ah, I didn't want to be hassled about. I know I don't pray enough. Who's hassling me? I know I don't do whatever I'm supposed to do enough. I don't want to be hassled, right? And we endure it because it's good for you. But it feels like the dentist's office. And uh, wouldn't you just rather church felt a little bit more like your birthday, right? What's the average news on your birthday? Is you got cake and you got a present. And it was fun. And you got one of those pointy hats. Amazing. I love those hats, right? I wish that church felt a little bit more like that. In fact, Nehemiah points it back to the people here. And he says... Don't be sad about it. Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods, sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with those who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And as I look out at Element Church and this beautiful kingdom that we have the opportunity to continue to try to build, I hope that we approach the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the, the ministry of what the Bible can do in our lives, like it's our birthday, like it's joy, like there's gladness, and not like going to the dentist, suffering something because it's good for us. And man, if you're a dentist, God loves you. God died for you. <laughs> he wants you in his family. <laughs> Probably. All right. So (laughs) I almost feel like I'm tricking you because number three, like, really is like going to the dentist. And it's this value of public confession, public confession. So if I'm saying gathered reading and celebrating in the worship experience is kind of like your birthday, public confession really is doing something tough just because it's good for you. Let's see how Nehemiah tells us about this in chapter nine. I'll start in verse one. He says, on October 31, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted. They dressed in burlap. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of the ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours they confessed their sins and they worshipped the Lord their God. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani, they stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. And this is a bit of a different vision. This is not joy. It's not celebration. It's not thanksgiving. This is like funeral stuff. The people know that they have done some stuff wrong and they need to repent. They need to turn away from that. They need to choose differently. And they don't want to get comfortable in their sin. And so they go to the whole length of putting on a burlap shirt. Have you guys ever worn a burlap shirt? You have not. They are not comfortable, right? But they don't want to be comfortable in their sin. They want to be reminded this feeling, I need to get rid of it, just like we need to get rid of our sin. They don't want to appear happy about their sin, so they cover their head with dirt and dust and ash. 
Does everybody, anybody ever said to you, hey man, you look tired? Not a compliment, right? These people wanted to look tired because they wanted to be grieved by their sin. They're putting on a physical display of their repentance before the Lord. Then they separate themselves out. They read the book of the law for how long? Three hours. And then what do they do for three more hours? Confess their sin. And I'm no mathematician, but three plus three is six hours. And you guys are like, hey man, the Chiefs are playing. Let's get this show on the road. This is one hour. They're taking it to six, right? They're taking it to six. And they're taking it up a level. (laughs) There's an interesting phrase there in the middle. Did you catch it where he says that they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors? Why did they do that? And why is that a hallmark of a beautiful kingdom? Well, some people would say that you need to confess the sins of your ancestors because you're guilty of them too, just because you are related. And I don't think that's actually what the Bible means here. I think it's more true that God calls us to be individually responsible for what we've done. Yet at the same time, sometimes we get so hyper-focused on us, and I didn't do it, and I didn't do that, that end up our habit, we just perpetuate the wrongdoing of our ancestors because we're just stuck in that cycle. We haven't bothered to imagine anything better and different than they did. These people in Nehemiah's day are honest about being a sinful people from sinful generations, and they tell the truth about it so that they can see it, so that it's not hidden, it's plainly visible, and then they can choose to build something better and something different on purpose. You know, the last time I was overseas on a mission trip, I had a conversation with my friend Florine. Florine is one of my best friends in the world. I've learned so much about following Jesus from him and the truth of the gospel. And we were serving in the country of Romania. The state or the region in Romania is a state called Transylvania. You guys ever heard about this place? What do you know about this place? Yeah, they actually hate that. <laughs> That's the vampire thing. Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, is an Irish guy, said it in Transylvania, and now it's like vampire country or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's true. I've been to the castle, everything. It's kind of fun. Transylvania is currently a part of the country of Romania, governed by the Romanian government. But you go back a little bit, it was pretty much Russian, like in the Cold War, communist bloc. That was Transylvania, was that. Before that, it was part of Hungary. You guys remember your history books, Austria, Hungary, and World War II? They controlled Transylvania. And in fact, after the World War, they kind of carved that off and handed it to Romania, like as a punishment. Before that, Well, it's true. They punished Austria-Hungary. Before that, it was uh, German settlers. Before that, it was uh, Romanians again. Before that, it was actually Romans who went out and settled that land. And uh, so now, if you go to Transylvania, it's a beautiful country. There's Romans there. There are Hungarians there. There are Romanians there. There are Russians there. And there's been thousands of years of conflict over this strip of land. And so whose fault is it whose ancestors sinned that we need to confess and fix and make right. So I'm sitting there in Cluj, and Florine says, I almost don't care about whose fault it was. I'm putting words in his mouth here a little bit. He says, it's our job to learn from the past and then to build a better future than our ancestors gave us, to do a better job than they did. We learn from the past, and then we build a better future than our ancestors gave us to inherit. So beautiful to me, right? This is, I think, what Nehemiah is saying about confessing the sins of our ancestors. We learn from our past, and then we build a better future because now it's our job to build. Our ancestors did whatever they did, good or bad, and now it's our job to build. Some of that was good, and we're blessed for it. Some of that was bad, and we're still dealing with that. We need to build a better future according to, I think, the principles in Scripture and the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're not responsible for what grandma and grandpa did. We're responsible for what we do now. Let's do a better job. Let's build a more beautiful kingdom. Let's build a better future. 
I think it's only possible if we're telling the truth about where we've come from and where we'd like to go, right? It's true, I think, on a societal level, but even at like a family level or even a personal level or an individual level, like we have to tell the truth about who we are, where we come from, so that we can go to the right place next. It really is like going to the dentist. Poor dentists. Remember the last time you went to the dentist? They told you the bad news. Hey, man, you got a cavity. And you're like, I know. That's why I've been avoiding coming here. But instead of condemning you, they say, I'll take care of you. And they'll treat you gently and professionally and with kindness. And really, it's not that bad, right? You get your tooth healed and you think to yourself, why didn't I do that a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, right? (laughs) Confession is kind of like that. Go to the Lord who loves you and let him help you and fix you and cleanse you. He will care for you. And you'll think to yourself, why did I hide it for so long? This is, I think, the beauty of confession because God is for us. He's not against us. And we see that, I think, in our next marker of Nehemiah's beautiful kingdom. And this is the value of remembering God's faithfulness. We remember God's faithfulness. Nehemiah's people do this here in chapter 9, verse 15. He says it this way, You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry, water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. But our ancestors were proud, stubborn. They paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. Even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, they committed terrible blasphemies. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of clouds still led them forward by day. The pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And this passage is one of the reasons I love reading through Nehemiah in specific and the Bible more generally, is it's a family history, a record of God's faithfulness to his people throughout generations. We say we have to confess our ancestors' sins, but we also get to, in a sense, stand in our ancestors' blessings, that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Nehemiah still blesses us. He has always been faithful, and he will still be faithful to us. We can learn from how God blessed his people in the past and position ourselves to do likewise. Look here at verse 17. This is like the real core of it here. This is actually a quote from earlier in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. This is probably the Bible verse that the Bible itself quotes most often. In other words, it's trying to really bring a highlight to this principle that it teaches as a very central truth about what God is like. Nehemiah says it this way. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, rich and unfailing love. (laughs) You guys, this is the character of the God that we serve. And when we choose to remember his faithfulness and position ourselves to become likewise, to receive likewise, and to press in closer to him, doesn't that sound like the kind of a God whose family you want to be a part of? Rich, merciful, long-suffering, patient. Element Church, let's build a church that's likewise, that is long-suffering, that's rich in mercy, that's abounding in steadfast love, as the King James says. I'd like to be the character of the God who's given new life to us. What do you think? Hmm. You know, one way I think we can reflect that character is in this fifth hallmark that Nehemiah gives us, uh, which is generosity in giving. 
generosity and giving. Nehemiah teaches us here in chapter 10, verses 35 and following. This is the people speaking now. He says that we promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year, whether it be a crop from the soil or from our fruit trees. We agree to give God our oldest sons and the firstborn of all of our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law. We will present them to the priests who minister in the temple of our God. We will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God. We will bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit, the best of our new wine and olive oil. We promise to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our rural towns. A priest, a descendant of Aaron, he will be with the Levites as they receive these tithes. And a tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed in the storerooms. The people and the Levites must bring these offerings of grain, of new wine, of olive oil to the storerooms and place them in the sacred containers near the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. You know, we already talked about this principle a bit when we talked in chapter 5 about how we can care for the poor in society. And here, Nehemiah is echoing this, but he's saying it's not just the job of the rulers and the authorities. Nehemiah is outlining how it's all the people, rich or poor, businessman or employee, business owner or farmer, old or young, everybody is endeavoring to be generous to the house of the Lord. These tithes, which is a word for like a 10% offering of everything that they had, was given into the Levites, stewarded to the priests, kind of, who were using it for temple worship and to support those who were about the work of the Lord in their community. You know, the modern church, it's not exactly the same as the temple economy, of course, but I do think it still remains up to the church to be generous in in providing for the work of the local ministry. I'm even a bit hesitant to bring this up because it's like my fourth week and I don't want to be somebody who's like always asking you for money or thinking that God is just after your pocketbook and like I want to build the bank accounts of Element Church and this is like really far from my goal, super far from my goal to put money in our bank here, right? But I think Jesus knows that money often is the thing that has the most hold on our heart and he tells us in the Gospels that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, whatever you value the most, your heart follows it. If it's money, It's the wrong thing to value. If it's the work of the Lord, that's the right thing to value. Jesus encourages us to let go of our money and value the work of the kingdom of God. I think he knows us, right? So this is what our generous giving does, you guys. I think it makes a difference here in the world. Not to hoard up in bank accounts or anything like that, but really to be put back into the ministry and into the work of the people. So, for example, if you are blessed by our eKids ministry, somebody's helping you disciple your kids and raise them up to follow Jesus, the generous giving of somebody made that possible. If you're blessed when you come in here and we get to sing worship songs together and gather and offer our lives to the Lord in song, just like we did this morning, the generous giving of somebody made that possible. When you come into the building and there's heat and lights and like actually even a building, it's people who gave generously 10 years ago that we could have this space. I didn't give any money to Element Church 10 years ago, and yet I reap this harvest that was sown by them of an amazing facility that we can use to honor the Lord and one with another. And then we bless the community. We already talked about that. This is what generous giving does. It changes lives, not for our bank account, but because the work of God matters and it's worth investing in. And so let me say as somebody whose fourth weekend is here at Element Church, thank you, thank you for being a generous community. Thank you for being a generous, giving community. Thank you for being about the work of the Lord. It has blessed people. It's blessing me. I pray that it's blessing you even this morning. Let's continue to be a generous church, Element Church, not because our bank account matters, but because the work of the Lord 
matters. How did Nehemiah put it? I already scrolled past it. We promised together not to neglect the temple of our God. Not to neglect worship, not to neglect care for the poor, not to neglect any of these things that we're talking about. We're going to try to do a good job at Element at doing all those things right. Thank you for your generosity and helping us to do that. All right, so that brings me here to the sixth of these indicators, I think, of a transformed community. Our last one, a beautiful kingdom present here in Nehemiah. After everybody's been gathered, after they've thought about who's in charge and who gets what money and all this kind of societal stuff and just the tension that comes with that, plenty of tension we skipped over, they say we have to offer ourselves to the Lord in worship because worship is the sixth hallmark of a transformed community. If we're not worshiping the Lord, really, what even are we doing? Look at how Nehemiah puts it. We'll start in chapter 12, verse 27, and then we'll skip down. For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harp and lyre. Skipping to verse 40. The two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of God where they took their places. And so did I, together with a group of leaders who were with me. We went together with the trumpet-playing priests who were Eliakim, Maaseah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah and Hananiah, and the singers, Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonahan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. They played and sang loudly under the direction of Jezrahiah, the choir director. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and the children also participated in the celebration, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. And I love this vision, this imaginative, beautiful future vision that Nehemiah gives us of a transformed community who's rebuilt and come through some stuff, who's regathered from the foreign land, who's got the city back together. We offer ourselves to the Lord in praise because it's he who's done the work. It's he who's changed lives and it's he who is responsible. This is what Hebrews 13 calls offering a sacrifice of praise, something even which costs you something, not just your duty of your time, not just money, Not just law and rules, but a wholehearted, a spirited, a passionate worshiping of the Lord. I think worship keeps us focused on God, on something greater than ourselves, on the one whose love and grace and mercy sustains, upholds, and liberates us each and every single day. All right, so we see these six hallmarks of Nehemiah's beautiful kingdom community. What do we do about it? How do we unprogram ourselves from those teachings that the world gives us? And how do we choose what the Lord has for us? We get to choose. Do you want to choose, like the world says, to look out for yourself? Or do you want to care for the poor? You get to choose. Do you want to seek entertainment, like the world says? Or do you want to value the gathered reading of the word? You get to choose. Do you want to say, don't worry about your actions? Or do you want to confess your sins and make it right with the Lord? You get to choose. You get to choose. Do you want to look only to today or do you want to remember God's faithfulness in the past? You get to choose. Do you want to say, I want to hoard and build as much wealth as I can or do you want to say, I want to be generous in my giving? You get to choose today. Or do you want to focus on yourself or do you want to be a worshiper who focuses on the Lord? Element Church today, we get to choose. And I want to say with Joshua in Old Testament today, choose life, choose God's way. Let's pray and ask for God's help in this endeavor. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. 
may your will be done. May your beautiful kingdom, Lord Jesus, that you taught us about here in this earth that we see in the pages of Nehemiah today, may that kingdom come here on earth today as it already has in heaven. Father, may the heavenly kingdom break into here our broken earthly kingdom. Father, only by your help can we do this. We confess we lack the imagination, we lack the vision, we lack the discipline, we lack even the ability to change things. But God, you paid for that on the cross. You paid it all. And so God, this week as we endeavor to choose life and not this pattern of worldliness which is blowing up our life each and every day, give us grace to find you, we pray. Father, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. And God, as we seek power and glory and kingdom in your name, may we, about, may we be about the type of kingdom you taught us to pursue, where we don't lord it over one another like the world does and say we're friends, but God, help us to live out that Luke 22 teaching that whoever's the greatest in this kingdom would be the servant of all, that the greatest here would be the servant at the table, that the greatest here would be the most loving, the most sacrificing, the most giving, the least of all. Father, may we find that kingdom, that power, and that glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast or follow us on social media. To learn more about our gathering times in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or to take your next step, visit our website, elementchurch.life. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next week right here on the Element Church Podcast.